We're going to read from two passages tonight, and the first one is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking him, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And the second uh, reading tonight is from Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14 to 5, verse 10. And again, that's on page 1002 of the Church Bibles. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of the men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Um, I want to begin tonight really by posing a question that I think will help us, not only as we try and understand this passage in Hebrews 4, but as we try and understand a lot of the stuff 
in the book of Hebrews. And that's the question, why did God wait so long to send Jesus? So as Christians, we believe that, you know, God sent his son, Jesus, in the world to save us from sin. But sin came into the world when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. So why immediately after Adam and Eve did God not just send Jesus then? Why is it that in the Bible from Abraham up until the birth of Jesus, we have roughly 2,000 years in which we see God only really interacting and dealing with this one nation on earth, the nation of Israel? And why is it that, that during that period, we see God institute religious practices that he would say we no longer would need to do after the time of Jesus? So all that stuff in the Old Testament of the Bible, all that stuff about temples and priests and sacrifices, it seems, to be honest, it seems really primitive and foreign and alien to what we know now. So why did he do it? Well, let me try and answer that by saying that one of the reasons, I think, one of the reasons that the Bible teaches that God waited so long to send Jesus is because what he was doing through the nation of Israel and through the Old Testament was laying down a context by which we could understand Jesus when he did come. So in the Old Testament, he's laying down a context for us so that we could understand Jesus when he would send him. So the Old Testament is kind of like God's visual aid that helps build up for us a picture of Jesus. It's real events, they really happened but they are there to point us towards and to teach us about God's Son. So temples and priests and sacrifices and and all that stuff was initiated by God primarily so that we could learn about Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that it's impossible to know Jesus without the Old Testament. You can know something of Jesus through what a friend has told you. You can know something of Jesus through reading the New Testament, through reading the Gospels. Um, but actually, I don't know if you've ever sat down and read a Gospel with someone who's not a Christian. It's surprising how much Old Testament imagery is in them. The Gospel writers themselves assume a knowledge of the Old Testament. You can know Jesus from uh, these different ways, but your knowledge of Jesus will be very uh, flat, very two-dimensional, and maybe in some cases very inaccurate. If you want to have a robust, multicolored, multidimensional understanding of Jesus Christ, then you have to know your Old Testament. You've got to know the Old Testament scriptures, which is why, as a church, we're quite happy to teach both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. That's the way that God's decided to teach us about Jesus. Um, And God, to be honest, God's a good teacher. He knows what he's doing. He's given us good illustrations. Now, I had to say that by way of introduction because tonight in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author is going to show us how one particular Old Testament category teaches us about Jesus Christ. And that is this Old Testament idea of the high priest. So before the foundations of the world began, God said, I am going to create a priesthood within this nation, the nation of Israel, to help humanity understand my son when I do send him. We're going to see how Jesus fulfills this idea of priesthood and how actually when you understand what it means for Jesus to be a high priest, it's a tremendous and tremendously encouraging truth. Remember the, the chief concern of the letter of Hebrews is to encourage Christians not to turn away from Jesus. 
Uh, this, the writer wants us to press on. And last week we saw that we're on a journey. We're on a journey to enter the rest of God. And the author was warning his readers that they need to take heed. They need to be careful lest they don't complete that journey, lest they fall away completely. So it kind of leaves us thinking, well, what if I can't make it to the end of this journey? Because to be honest, being a Christian is not a walk in the park. It's a real struggle. Feeling, I'm battling a lot with sin. Battling and it seems that I'm losing. So how can I make it to the end? Well, what we'll see in this passage is you cannot make it by yourself. If you're to keep going as a Christian, you need help. In fact, you need a priest. That's the main point, really, that I want to convey. That's the main point of the passage. Knowing Jesus as your high priest will help you to keep going as a Christian. So that's confusing. It leaves us with three questions, I think. Three questions which, uh, helpfully, the text raises and answers. Firstly, what on earth is a high priest? Secondly, how does this priesthood all point towards Jesus? How does Jesus fulfill the role of high priest? And then thirdly and finally, how does that help us to keep going? So firstly then, what is a high priest? Let's see, we've got a picture of him. There he is. That's, that's kind of what an Old Testament high priest would look like with their fancy robes. Um, it looks like somebody's tried to play knots and crosses on his robes. Um, so that, that's the kind of uh, image of what an Old Testament priest would look like. When the Bible talks about priests, that's basically uh, what it's talking about. Uh, so what did they do? Well, look at verse 1 to 4 of chapter 5. This is the definition, really, of what a high priest is. Look, first of all, at verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So a high priest was a man chosen to represent humanity to God. Uh, there were certain individuals in the nation of Israel and they had to stand in between Israel and God, in between the people and God. They were instituted by God to represent the fact that if a human being is to come to their creator, if they are to come towards God, there needs to be a mediator. There needs to be somebody who can stand in the middle. There has to be someone who acts like a bridge between humanity and God. And that was the high priest. And why can't we just come to God without a mediator? Why, why do we need to have this person in between us and God? Well, the answer is kind of hinted at there in verse 1. It's because of our sin. It's because there is something fundamentally wrong inside all of us that separates us from the perfect goodness of God. We all do and say things that are wrong and it alienates us from our Creator. And so the high priest would represent the bridge between sinful humanity and a good God. And he would symbolically bring the people to God by sacrificing an animal on behalf. A sacrifice that had to show that their sin was so bad that it required payment by death, payment by blood, before they could come into the presence of this God. That's what they were. And then the author shows us uh, two things really that would be needed to qualify for this kind of job as a high priest in the Old Testament. Firstly, uh, in verses 2 to 3, we see that they, they were sinners who were sympathetic to human weakness. They were sinners who were sympathetic 
to human weakness. Verse 2 and 3 are really, really interesting when you look at these verses. Because when you read of priests, or when I read of priests in the Old Testament, uh, you often think of it as this kind of cold, uh, religious appointment. But actually, if you look at what the author of Hebrews is saying about being a priest, he says that one of the key qualifications was that they had to be sympathetic to the people's weakness. It's kind of like a a divinely appointed counselor. A priest had to deal gently with those who were ignorant and sinful. Why? Because he himself was sinful. And like the people he is representing, a priest is beset with the same weaknesses and the same shortcomings. So being a priest in the Old Testament wasn't merely about showing people that there needs to be someone to stand between them and God, but it was also about being sympathetic and counseling the people of God as their representative before God. Secondly, we see in verse 4 that a priest had to be divinely appointed by God. And I've said there like Aaron Verse 4, no one takes this honor upon himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. This is a divinely given role. You couldn't just decide to be a priest. It had to be given by God himself. And the Old Testament is explicit that if you wanted to be a priest, you couldn't just be from any tribe in Israel. You had to be from uh, the tribe of Levi, descendant from Aaron. So Aaron was uh, sort of the first high priest initiated within the nation of Israel, and they had to be descended for him. You couldn't just rock up to the temple one day and whack on some fancy robes and say that I'm going to be the representative of the people towards God. God himself had to choose you. So that's what a high priest was in the Old Testament. Uh, Someone who represented a bridge between God and humanity, uh, who was qualified by being able to identify with the people, and somebody who was also appointed by God. Um, that's what we read of. Now let's get into the mindset of the original readers of the letter of Hebrews. Um, Think about the Christian at this time. It sounds foreign, doesn't it? It sounds strange and almost alien to us. But in the ancient world, everyone had priests. Priests were all around about them. Um, But the Christians... They didn't have any priest, they didn't have any temple, they didn't have any sacrifice, which is why Justin Martyr, who um, was an early Christian apologist writing uh, early in the first century, said that one of the accusations that people used to throw against Christianity was that they would call them atheists because they didn't have any of the religious practices that every other religion round about them seemed to have. Um, Now think about the Christian who is reading this letter for the first time. Christians probably most likely converted from Judaism. Christians who would have had Jewish friends who had this, uh, this priesthood that they would go to. And imagine, I can imagine the Jewish friend saying to the Christian, look, you have no sacrifices, you've got no temples, you've got no priests. Me, I can go to the temple. I can take my sacrifice with me and I can watch as the priest sacrifices on my behalf. I can watch as the priest deals with my sin. I can see someone who is my representative, my counselor, to stand between me and God. I know that he brings my case to God. And you don't have any of that. You see, there would have been a real temptation for these early Christians to go back to these Jewish rituals, to go back to having this priest. A real temptation. That's why the letter of Hebrews is written. That's why the letter of Hebrews is pregnant with Old Testament imagery to show these Jewish Christians that 
All the Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus. It's all a shadow. This priestly system that God initiated was a shadow, but they have the substance that is found in Jesus Christ. And in verses 5 to 10 of chapter 5, the author goes on to masterfully show his readers how Jesus perfectly fulfills this idea of a priesthood. It's the second question then. How is Jesus the ultimate high priest? How does he qualify for this role in a way that is better than anyone before him? Well, he begins by talking about the point that he left on in verses 1 to 4. He talks first of all about Jesus' divine appointment. He says that Jesus was appointed by God like Melchizedek. The author quotes Psalm 2 in verse 5 to remind us this is no mere man. Uh, Rather, here we have the Son of God, verified by God himself as his Son. He has an authority that is unique to him alone. Uh, Then in verse 6, he shows us by quoting from Psalm 110 that Jesus was appointed by God as a priest. Uh, And look at the words, not just uh, as a priest for some temporal period, but as a priest forever, the final priest, the eternal priest, that all priests pointed towards. There are no priests after him. But unlike previous priests, Jesus, he says, doesn't say that Jesus came from the line of Aaron. Rather, he says that he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is another Old Testament character. And if you're thinking, who on earth is Melchizedek? Um, Then that's a good question to be thinking. It's not really something that I'm going to deal with because the author himself will deal with this in chapter 7 in that incredibly uh, difficult chapter, even more difficult than this one, uh, which I think Neil's preaching on. So Neil will tell you who Melchizedek is. Um, Let me just say, just for the purpose of what he's trying to say here, that Melchizedek was a priest before Aaron and he was a king And basically, the argument in chapter 7 is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of Aaron. So what he's saying here is that Jesus is part of a better priesthood, a more eternal priesthood than that of those who are descended from Aaron. But secondly as well, he shows us, this is how Jesus is better, Jesus is the sinless one who is sympathetic to human weakness. See that in verse 7 to 8. Jesus is the sinless one, sympathetic to human weakness. Now we said that, what's confusing about this is we said that, I think the author says as well, that a high priest could sympathize with the people's weaknesses because he was a sinner. So part of the way that he was able to sympathize with the sin of the people is because he himself was a sinner. But if we look at verse 9, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is perfect. It's a bit of a confusing uh, statement there in chapter 5, verse 9, where he talks about him being made perfect. He's not saying that Jesus was somehow disobedient and imperfect, and then he became obedient and perfect. Uh, But what he is trying to say to us is that he learned the full cost of what it meant to be obedient to God when he was tempted uh, and when he had to face the trials that he faced as a human being. And that made him perfectly equipped. So he was perfectly well equipped to be our high priest. Look at chapter 4, verse 15 as well. We'll come back to this verse. Um, Chapter 4, verse 15. 
Incredible verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So how can someone who hasn't given in to sin like us really know what we're going through? I mean, how can Jesus really know what I've experienced in my battle against sin when he's not given in to sin? I think it's important to realize that just because Jesus never gave in to sin doesn't mean that he does not know the agony of temptation. In fact, it's because he never gave in to temptation that he knows the pain of temptation better than anyone else. I was reading uh, this quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis sort of meditated on this verse, and I think it's so helpful. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. I think it's in mere Christianity. He writes, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not giving in. It's a bit of a dated quote. Um, You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have, a, they have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try and fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. Lewis writes, he is the only complete realist. I think that's so helpful. Jesus knows better than any sinner the full weight of what temptation is because he never gave in to it. Verses 7 to 8 there in chapter 5 of Hebrews, they describe an event in Jesus' life that we read of, that Laura read to us from Matthew chapter 26, where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before his death. It's the night before he is going to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity, before he himself is going to bear the wrath of God for every wrong thing that we've done so that we can be forgiven. The only one who doesn't deserve to bear the wrath of God. And the thought of it is so agonizing to Jesus that he is on his knees praying to the Father, Let this cup pass from me. Let the cup of your wrath pass from me. Lord, if there's any other way for me to save human beings without having to do this, let it pass. But he prays at that moment, yet not my will, but your will be done. See, he knows the pain of temptation with cries and tears and supplications, crying out to God, in agony, and yet he's perfectly obedient to the will of God. Priests in the Old Testament, they had to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. The sacrifices didn't remove the sins of the people. It was a symbol. Because Jesus is 
the sacrifice for the sin of the people. The priest who is the sacrifice for the sin of his people. That's why the author of Hebrews can say in verse 9, he is the source of salvation to all who obey him. All who trust Jesus will be saved by Jesus. Priests existed to represent the fact we need a bridge between humanity and God. Well, Jesus is that bridge. He's the sacrifice who takes the punishment for our sin. Now think about that Hebrew Christian as they read those words, as they understand and read this book. Why on earth would you want to go back to that old priestly system when you could have this instead? It's just praying through this passage and it's just the thing that strikes you when you're praying through it. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. When you read through the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Something great and marvelous is here. Better than anything else that has been before it. Now let's take all this together then and ask our third and final question. How does knowing that Jesus fulfills this priestly role, how does that actually help us then to keep going as a Christian today? How, how, how does this understanding of priesthoods and how Jesus fulfills that, how does that help us to keep grow, going uh, as we journey to enter God's rest? Well, read verse uh, 14 of chapter 4 with me through to verse 16. I think this is the application. Since then, the author writes, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. How does it help to know that Jesus is our high priest? Well, it helps because it shows us that Jesus, our Savior, knows our struggles. He knows our weaknesses. The priesthood was God's way of taking care of his people. But Jesus is the ultimate counselor. In fact, in Isaiah 9, Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor. Because there is no experience that you and I have gone through or will ever go through that he himself has not experienced to degrees infinitely greater. Jesus was a human being. He was human, flesh and blood, like you and me, who faced the same difficulties and the same trials that we faced. And, and, and it's so important to say that because there's a tendency, I think, especially within evangelical circles, almost to downplay this. So, so in liberal wings of the church, they have a real tendency to highlight the humanity of Christ, his care and his compassion and what he was like as a human being, but completely downplay the divinity of Christ, the fact that he is the saviour, the sacrifice for sins, the judge of humanity. But as a reaction against that, I think in evangelical circles, what we have, a, have had a tendency to do is to highlight the divinity of Christ. So he is this powerful Savior who has saved us from our sins. He is God and Lord and Creator. He is judge of the entire world. But we've almost downplayed the humanity of Jesus so that Jesus is this kind of distant entity. As if Jesus doesn't just save you from your sins and then say, well, good luck with the rest of your life. I'll see you when you get here. 
Jesus is a human being who can sympathize with our weaknesses now. Jesus is somebody who has come to help us now. He's the wonderful counselor tonight. He knows our weaknesses because he's our priest. And I know that there will be some of you here tonight in this room who follow Jesus. And you feel right now as if your Christian life is balanced on the edge of a razor. Because there is sin eaten away, sin that you have not resisted, the temptation. And I know because that's a normal experience, I think, for a Christian. But brothers and sisters, Jesus knows better than all of us. He's been where we have. He knows. He knows. He was tempted in every respect, it says there. Every respect. You know that Jesus was tempted to sexual sin? He was tempted to lust? You know that Jesus would have been tempted to violent outbursts with all these people wrongly accusing him? You know that Jesus would have been tempted to speak ill of others? Jesus would have been tempted to steal. Jesus would have been tempted to lie. Jesus would have been tempted to covet. Tempted to greed. Every respect, every way in which we have been tempted, he has faced those temptations. But unlike us, he has not given in to them. He never let those temptations lead to anything sinful. Perfectly, though through great pain and anguish and struggle, as we saw in Gethsemane, he fights those temptations and is perfectly obedient to God. Jesus has been right on the front lines of the battle with sin. You see how radical a concept this is. Every other religious concept of God is all about him being this kind of far-off, removed being. And here we have a God who gets right down in the dirt and the muck of human existence. And yet he still remains the perfect, transcendent Lord and Savior of all. And he says to you here tonight, struggling Christian, I know what you're facing. So if you want help, if you need help in your fight against sin, don't look to yourself because... If you do, then all you'll find is just how weak and feeble you are. If you want help to keep going, look to Jesus. We don't fail as Christians because we're weak. We fail because we look to the wrong person. Striving to enter God's rest is not about amassing enough willpower to fight off sin, but it's about looking to the one who has defeated your sin. Jesus knows, and Jesus calls us to come. Verse 16 come boldly to the throne of God. Why? Because Jesus, our our high priest, he has made the sacrifice for sin. He has dealt with sin. And brothers and sisters, his sacrifice was so perfect, so sufficient. His priestly role is so better that it means we can approach God's throne confidently Wearied sinner, you need help. You need help when Satan lies to you and tells you there's no hope for you. You need to come to the throne of grace. No matter how much shame, no matter how much embarrassment you feel, you need to come and you need to understand that God looks at you and says, here's my righteous one, forgiven of all sin. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard because we know we don't deserve it. 
That's why it's called the throne of grace. We don't deserve it. But in times of shame, we need to hear God say over us, forgiven, not because we're perfect, but because what Jesus, our high priest, did was perfect. Come before his throne time and time again with the free access that we have to come before his throne. That means coming to him in prayer any time we want because Jesus, our high priest, has given us that access. The high priest who has traveled into the heavens as verse 14 says, has given us unhindered access to God. Pray, cry out like he did in Gethsemane for help in the fight against sin and temptation. Don't give up. Christ is there and he is there to assure us that he will give us mercy and grace when we need it. And some of you here tonight, you need to come for the first time there's no commitment to follow Jesus. Well, now is the time. You know, you, you need help. <laughs> we all need help. No matter how many skeletons you've kept hidden in your closet, no matter how well uh, you've managed to hide your sin and put across that your life's good, you need help because God knows, verse 13 of chapter 4, God knows. He sees it all. He knows what you're like. And you cannot come to him without a priest to deal with your sin. So come to Jesus before the throne. All that stuff in priests, it might be confusing. Come before his throne. That means simply come to him in prayer tonight, asking for forgiveness. And he will give you, he will give you just that. See, do you see how this Old Testament idea of a priest helps us to keep going? Such an amazing truth. God laid this down, this institution, so that when his son came, you here in Chalmers Church would be able to understand that he came as one sympathetic to your fight against sin and yet also as one who's come to save you from your sin. Let me just close by reading these words we're about to sing right now. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you we have a priest. Thank you, Lord, that when you designed the priesthood for the nation of Israel, it was so we could understand what your son would do for us on our behalf. Thank you that Jesus is just better than anything else. That Jesus is our counselor. That Jesus is the one sympathetic to our fight against sin. One who has been down in the dirt, who has experienced it himself. One who knows what we're going through here tonight. He is not distant. He is not far. But he walks with us and he calls us to come to him asking for help, asking for grace and mercy. And so, Father, help us to confidently approach your throne. Father, as we come tonight, as we gather around the Lord's table to remember the death of Jesus, may we encourage each other as a church and collectively we come before your throne of grace asking for help and praising you that you have dealt with our sin and that is removed. Thank you that Jesus is perfect as our high priest. We pray this now in his name. Amen.